I am now six weeks into a series that I've entitled Unmasked, a series on the Ten Commandments. And we are looking this morning at the fifth commandment, just one verse, Exodus chapter 20, verse 12. Exodus chapter 20, verse 12. Honor your father and your mother, that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. As I've said throughout this series, the Ten Commandments are not a ladder we climb to get God's love and God's blessings. They are an impassable wall that we crash into so that we'll finally admit that we are desperate for God. That's what they are. Oftentimes we misread the Ten Commandments or the Ten Commandments have been mistaught to us to get us to think that the Ten Commandments are, for the most part, a ladder that we climb. The higher that we get, um, the more of God's love and the more of God's blessings we receive so that the better we are at keeping the Ten Commandments, the better God will be to us. But that's not what the Ten Commandments are intended to accomplish in your life and mine. Uh, they are a wall we crash into so that we will finally admit that we can't do it, so that we will finally admit that we are desperate for God, so that we'll finally admit that we aren't God and we need help from God. In other words, the primary purpose of the Ten Commandments is to expose us, to level us, to unmask us. That's the primary purpose. God's law is intended to reveal that we are weaker than we think we are. It is intended to show us that we are not righteous. It is intended to show us that we are not basically good, which is something we desperately want to believe about ourselves. And yet the Ten Commandments stand in our way of believing that, of coming to that conclusion. I was thinking about this last night, why it is so hard for me to admit I'm not good. But the truth of the matter is, if we insist on believing that we are good and strong, Christianity will have zero appeal to us. Zero appeal. Um, the message of God's grace will not be appealing to us if we don't recognize how desperate we are for it. The whole goal of God's law is to expose the fact that none of us are not in need of grace. Okay, I'll say that again. The whole purpose of the Ten Commandments, the whole purpose of God's law is to expose the fact that none of us are not in need of grace. We all need grace because we fail, because we lie, because we hide things, because we get mad when we don't get our way, because we gossip, because we're impatient, because we're not thankful, because we're selfish, because we hold grudges, because we're slow to forgive. We all need grace because we're proud, because we use people, because we're controlling, because we're greedy, because we're more bothered by other people's sin than we are our own sin. The mission of the Ten Commandments is to reveal that we all need grace. That's the purpose, to expose us, to unmask us, to reveal to us that we are desperate for God. Now, the reason this makes many of us feel uncomfortable is because unbeknownst to us, unconsciously, we've built our identity on being good and right and strong. 
We may not realize we've built our identity on being good and right and strong, but we have. And that's why if someone says, you're not good, you're weak, you're wrong, we're offended. Um, The truth is uh, that when God's law exposes the fact that none of us are good and right and strong, we're offended. It offends us. Um, If you're afraid to let anyone see your weakness, it means you've built your identity on being strong. Okay, think about that for a second. If you're afraid to let anyone see your weakness, it proves, it means that you've built your identity on being strong. If you can't admit that you're bad, it means you've built your identity on being good. (laughs) You haven't built your identity on what God has done. You've built your identity on being good. If you get defensive, this one cuts like a knife. If you get defensive every time you're criticized, it reveals that you've built your identity on being right. Okay? Um, God's law forces an identity crisis. Forces it. It exposes all those non-gods that we build our lives on. Those places where we unconsciously anchor our worth and our value and our significance. It strips us of all of our self-sown fig leaves so that we are left naked and afraid. That's what God's law is intended to do. Because it's only when the fig leaves of our own righteousness are replaced with the cloak of Jesus' righteousness that we will be truly free. This is why our only hope comes from Jesus' words in Matthew 5 where he said, I have not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. God's law gives us no place to run, no place to hide. The verdict is in for all of us, guilty. And there's only one person who can do anything about that, and he has. So our relationship with God can only be perfectly unconditional because Jesus kept all of God's perfect conditions for us. I've not come to abolish the law. I've come to fulfill it. And that includes this commandment. Commandment number five. I grew up with parents who loved me. They weren't perfect, but they were caring, they were present, they were affectionate, they were wise, they were always available. I have nothing but the best memories of my mom and dad when I was small. My mom's still alive and lives in North Carolina. My dad died in January of 2010, and I miss him every day, every day. Uh, I mean, I am so grateful to God for putting me in the family he put me in. I mean, I had fun growing up. My mom and dad were serious about teaching us about God while at the same time teaching us never to take ourselves too seriously. So there was a lot of laughter in our home growing up. There was, our home was very hospitable. We never knew who was going to be sitting around at the dinner table because anyone who showed up at dinner was invited to stay. I mean, it was just a happy home for the most part. One of my brothers here, isn't that true? That's a pretty accurate description. Uh, Pretty accurate for the most part anyway. Um, But many of my friends can't say that. They didn't have parents that made them feel safe. They didn't have 
parents that made them feel loved. They didn't have parents that taught them about God and um, taught them how to love God and love one another. And uh, they didn't have parents that were honorable like mine. And so we assume that for the child who grew up like I did, honoring your mother and father must have been easy because they were, after all, honorable. I mean, this is easy. If your parents are honorable, this shouldn't be that difficult to keep this command. Um, But the truth is, like every other kid, I struggled with honoring my father and mother, and it had nothing to do with them being dishonorable. My issue was with me, not with them. It's funny how God's law does that. Rather than it first exposing the person sitting next to you, it exposes you. I can't tell you how many times I've preached over the years and someone comes up to me and says, uh, man, I was thinking about two or three people that I would have loved to hear that sermon. They really needed to hear it. And I usually respond and go, that's, yeah, I'm sure, maybe, well, okay. Has it dawned on you that you were here, God brought you here because You needed to hear it. Um, God's law has a funny way of exposing our sin rather than first exposing the sin of the person sitting next to you. Um, Like every other kid, I I struggled with honoring my mother and father. Um, But the fact of the matter is this, this command has little to do with whether our parents or anyone else for that matter is deserving of our honor. <clears throat> it almost has nothing. It has nothing to do with whether or not our parents or anyone else for that matter is deserving of our honor. It is intended to expose our propensity to honor ourselves. That's what this commandment is intended to do. This command unmasks the real reason why we struggle with honoring others. We struggle with it. Um, And we sometimes think that the reason we struggle with honoring this person or that person is because, man, they're just not honorable. And I'm having a hard time honoring this person or that person simply because they're not honorable. I'm having a hard time respecting this person because they're not respectable. Okay? Um... But this command unmasks the real reason we struggle with honoring others. It's not because they are dishonorable, although that may be very true. It's because to honor someone is to put them ahead of yourself. To honor someone is to consider them before you consider yourself. To honor someone means showing respect to every person all the time without exception, and without any reference to whether the person is respectable. Okay, I'll say that again. To honor someone means showing respect to every person all the time, without exception, and without any reference to whether the person is respectable. That's what it means to honor someone. It means always Always giving up your place for everybody. It means always, always discomforting yourself in order to make everyone else comfortable. Always, without exception. Yeah, but this guy, nope, covers that guy too. 
Um, in Jesus' words, when someone cheats you, instead of trying to get your stuff or money back, you got to give them more. It's straight from the Sermon on the Mount, where Jesus is preaching on the Ten Commandments. It means that you have to, in Jesus' words, turn the other cheek to your most aggressive enemies. Some dishonorable bloke slaps you in the face, you honor him by giving him your other cheek. Um, to honor someone means showing love to the unlovely, showing grace to the disgraceful all the time, without exception. And just in case you might think for a split second that you actually do that, okay, um, it, Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount and the Ten Commandments here don't simply command that we do that externally. That is something we must also do internally. In other words, um, it's not just that we show respect to everybody all the time without exception and without reference to whether they're respectable. We have to want to do that. Okay. Um, so giving honor has nothing to do with whether someone deserves honor. <laughs> It has to do with your heart and posture, not theirs. Well, when you put it like that, it should show us how often we fail at keeping this command, not only with our parents, but with everyone. Okay? We fail at this one, just like we have failed, we fail at all the other ones. Um... What comes natural to us is to put ourselves first, to fight for our rights, to, to clamor for credit. We think first about what we need, what we want, what we deserve, what others should do for us, what will make us comfortable, what will be best for us. I was thinking about this yesterday, and I was specifically thinking about the mother who slaves away at home doing laundry and cooking meals and, uh, you know, for, the, for their children. And they think, no, no, I am doing this for them. Well, it's, I'm going to talk about fathers in a second, so they're not off the hook. But, um, but you're, there's, a, there's an underlying reason mixed in with your love for the people in your home that you're doing it, okay? Um, and it's, I, somehow I'm going to get something back for this. I'm going to get respect for this. I'm going to get love for this. I'm going to get affirmation for this. I'm going to get a pat on the back and a job well done, mom, for doing this. Well, dads are the same way, you know? Uh, wife, kids, you go to work, you slave away, provide well for your home. Um, you say, well, I mean, I'm doing this. I'm, I'm, I'm thinking first about what they need and what they want and what, what they deserve. I'm thinking first about them. I'm doing this for my family. No, not really. Yes and no. You're doing it for them and you're doing it for you. Okay, because somewhere down there in your heart, mixed with all of those seemingly uh, pristine, pure motives, is some selfishness in there and there's some sin in there. And there's stuff in there that you don't want people to see, stuff you may not even be aware of. But you're doing some of those things to get something in return, okay? Um, so we automatically, I mean, this started at the Garden of Eden. 
We automatically think first about what we need, what we want, what we deserve, what others should do for us, what will be best for us. When others fail to meet our expectations, we feel justified in our resentments. We feel justified in our anger. We yearn for recognition. We yearn for respect. We want to be noticed for how good we are, how smart we are, how generous we are, how beautiful we are, how successful we are, how competent we are. When we are overlooked or unrecognized, we feel dishonored. When someone gets credit for something we've done, we feel dishonored. When we give to someone and they give nothing back in return, we feel dishonored. We clamor for honor. We feel as if we need it to live. The command to give honor is meant to expose the fact that we are addicted to getting honor. That's what this command is supposed to be all about. The command to give honor is meant to expose the fact that we are addicted to getting honor. Now, that's bad news, okay? This is an inescapable problem that we have. And as you and I know, fighting to be noticed and appreciated and loved and affirmed and honored makes life heavy. It's enslaving. I mean, think about it. Um, The need to get honor the need to get respect, the need to get credit, the need to, to be affirmed. That's, that's exhausting. It's tiresome. Um, living your life in order to get those things, in order to extract those things from other people, it's exhausting, it's enslaving, it's a heavy way to live. Uh, needing our opinions to win the day, our thoughts to carry the room, our reputations to get us ahead, our looks and our personalities to get us love. All of these things burden us. They make life hard and heavy. Life is harder, not easier when we feel the pressure to get to the front, to be recognized to be remembered, to to leave a legacy, to win, to secure the spotlight, whatever. I mean, living this way robs us of life. As I mentioned last week, there is a huge difference between living from acceptance and living for it. There's a huge difference between living from a position of being loved and living in such a way as to get love. One is the essence of freedom, and the other is the essence of slavery. Living this way robs us of life. It's one more bankrupt attempt to save ourselves. But, once again, what we find ourselves incapable of doing, God has done for us. My friend David Zoll puts it this way, so good. Our hope is not found in the passing of tests, but in the forgiveness of failure. By the sheer grace of God, the test to end all tests has already been taken and scored perfectly. So at every point where we fail, Jesus succeeded for us. Every point. And this commandment is no exception to that. Jesus honored his heavenly father in every way. 
He put his father before himself at all times and in every way. He laid down his life for his enemies. He was faithful to the faithless. He loved the unlovely. He gave grace to the disgraced. He was never dishonoring to anyone. And that achievement of his is now ours. That is how God relates to us. Not based on our soiled record, on our failing grade. God relates to us based solely on Christ's passing grade for us. Solely. And as a result of his perfect record being credited to us, we are now free. Free from the need to get honor and free to honor others. You are now free to give up your place for others instead of guarding in your place from others because your value is in Jesus, not your place. So now you can give honor to the dishonorable and respect to the disrespectable and grace to the disgraced. Because everything you need in Christ, you already have. We are justified by what Jesus has done, not by what we do. And that frees us to let go. <laughs> to let go. It allows us to revel in our unimportance. <laughs> I mean, that is real freedom, man. Seriously. When you, get, when you don't need to be important... When you don't need to feel important, it allows us, because we are justified, made right with God fully and finally because of what Jesus has done and not because of what we do, it allows us to revel in our unimportance. It allows us to be deferential, to give the spotlight rather than wanting to take it, to serve rather than be served. It liberates us to, this gospel, this good news liberates us to be overlooked by others because we will never be overlooked by God. And because I will never be overlooked by God, if you overlook me, I'll be okay. The gospel reduces the pressure to be noticed and to clamor for credit. The gospel assures you that you have been forever loved and eternally noticed by a loving father. And that liberates you to be unloved and unnoticed by others. I mean, it is tiresome when you need to be noticed. Tiresome. I, I need to be noticed. I need to get recognition. I, I deserve this respect. When, when that is your posture, it is, you, you know how it feels. We've all been there. I mean, it just makes life feel tight, rigid, hard, tense, you know? There's no freedom in that. Um, the gospel frees you from the burden to fight for your rights, to get attention. It unburdens you from needing affirmation in order to feel important. <laughs> 
We no longer need to spend our lives trying to earn the approval and acceptance and affection of those around us because Jesus has already earned God's approval, God's acceptance, and God's affection for us. That's what I mean when I say we no longer have to live for love or to get love or to get acceptance or to get approval because we already have it. We live from it, not for it. The gospel sets us free from having to win, from having to get ahead. We're free to disappear, to be forgotten. Uh, My pastor, who is in the room today, I'm not sure where he's sitting. There he is. Pat Thurmer, who doesn't know this, but he'll be praying to close out the service. Um, Which I just remembered now. Sorry I didn't ask you last night at dinner. Uh, Uh, I've got a story about him in a minute, but um, reminded me of a great line from Count Zinzendorf last night where he said, my mission in life is to preach the gospel, die, and be forgotten. (laughs) The only way that you can be so free is to say something like that is if you actually believe the gospel. You don't need to be remembered. We're so obsessed with leaving a legacy. Why? Because we clamor for credit. We need it to make us feel alive. Well, the gospel sets us free from that. Only the gospel can cause you to rejoice and be glad in your expendability. Because Jesus was someone, you are free to be no one. I mean, that's life, man. That is freedom. That is life, real, bona fide freedom. Uh, I could go on, but I shouldn't. I will conclude with this, okay? As a reminder that all of our richest blessings and our entire eternal inheritance is coming our way because of what Jesus has done and not what we do, I want to read you this old prayer. Thank you, Father, for accepting your son's worthiness for my unworthiness, his sinlessness for my transgressions, his purity for my uncleanness, his sincerity for my guile, his truth for my deceits, his meekness for my pride, His constancy for my faithlessness. His love for my hostility. His fullness for my emptiness. His faithfulness for my treachery. His obedience for my lawlessness. His glory for my shame. His devotedness for my waywardness. His righteousness for my unrighteousness. His death for my life. The Christian faith is about one thing, substitution. Substitution. It's not first a vehicle to make you a better person. Okay, I hate to be the bearer of bad news, but you're probably not that much better than you were 10 years ago, all right? And if you doubt yourself, ask your wife, all right? She will probably remind you. And then you will have the privilege of reminding her the same thing, okay? Um, But does... Does the work of God in our lives produce fruit? Absolutely. Does it change us? Yes. 
But Christianity is not first and foremost a vehicle for your improvement. It is first and foremost about Christ's substitution, not your transformation. We are accepted, loved, forever forgiven, approved, justified, reconciled solely and exclusively because of what Jesus has done. His work on our behalf. And the crazy thing about it is, and this is my favorite, probably my favorite uh, question that was ever posed to me, wrecked me when I first read it. The only rational question left to ask for any Christian is simply this. So what are we going to do now that we don't have to do anything? And this is what you'll discover. When you realize you don't have to do anything for God because it's already been done for you, you begin wanting to do everything for him. Okay? Fear and guilt trips don't generate Loving obedience, grace does. Unconditional love does. Knowing that whether you succeed or you fail, God's affection to you doesn't change. That's the gospel. There was a time in my life that I've already referred to where I desperately needed to be reminded of that gospel. I had a wife that would remind me of that on a daily basis. I had a few close friends that would remind me of that, but for the most part, I was, I was lost. And I needed to be reminded that Christians get lost sometimes. And that doesn't mean that they were never found in the first place. It means they wandered off and God lovingly comes after them and pursues them and puts them over his shoulder and brings them back into the fold. And I needed voices to remind me of that. And I was without hope. No prospect for a future. I knew I had my wife and I knew I had my kids and I was like, I'm good with that. But I also need to, I feel like I need to do something. Like I, I want to, I'm built and wired to do something, God. What, what is it? And there was no light at the end of the tunnel, no hope on the horizon at all. And I reconnected with a friend who was at that point just basically an acquaintance, pastoring a small Lutheran church uh, in Fort Myers, Florida. Stacy and I were living in Texas at the time. And he checked in on me as he would do. Uh, periodically, there were a handful of people from my former life who would check in on me to see how... I was doing to see what I was doing, pastoring me from a distance, and um, he checked in with me and said, what, how are you doing, and what are your plans, do you have any plans, what are you going to do with the rest of your life, and I said, man, I'm, I don't know, I have no idea, and I'm, I'm scared of that, 40, at the time, 43 years old, no idea how I was going to spend the rest of my life, uh, and he said, listen, I, our church is small and we don't have a lot of resources. Otherwise, I'd offer you a job. Even if no other church in the world wants you, we'd love to have you. I'd offer you a job. I can't because we don't have anything resource-wise. But we do have a church that will welcome you, love you, and be there to help you. 
we want to see you get back on your feet. We believe God's gifted you and called you to do a certain thing, and we want to see you do it again. And if we can play a small role in helping you get there by providing you a gospel-saturated community, we want to be that community for you. Amen. Make a long story short, Stacy and I made a trip to Fort Myers. Um, I had only been to Fort Myers one time in my life to see the Thomas Edison home that my parents dragged me to uh, when I was about 10 years old in the middle of summer. And it was about 6,000 degrees, and I hated it. It's the only time I'd been to Fort Myers. Stacy had never been to Fort Myers. We didn't know anybody in Fort Myers. Um, and uh, so we went. No job prospect. Had no idea what we were going to do to pay bills. But we went, and then uh, we came back, and we went again to visit. And at the end of that second trip, we just knew this is where God wants us. We don't know how long he wants here, but this is where he wants us. Um, outside of my dad, okay, who was, in my humble, very biased opinion, the greatest man who ever lived, um, Pat Thurmer has been a friend that sticks closer to a brother. And one who, if it were not for his robust belief in the gospel, this church wouldn't exist. If it was not for his understanding of his own sin and depravity and his own desperate need for grace and understanding that uh, I needed it, this church wouldn't exist. Pat and his wife Carla and their family adopted my wife and I. Not legally, although we would have availed ourselves for a legal adoption. Um, but they adopted us, they welcomed us, they nurtured us, they fought for us, uh, they loved us, they never blinked, not once, not once. The sanctuary uh, owes a massive debt of gratitude, humanly speaking, to Pat and Carla Thurmer and to the people at Living Faith Church. Um, this is Pat and Carl, well, it's not Carla's first time here. She was here for the women's thing in November, but this is Pat's first time here uh, at our church. And I, it is not lost on me that on the week that I'm preaching on honoring people, um, it is appropriate, right, and the deepest desire of my heart to honor both of you this morning. Thank you. Thank you for loving us. Thank you for... Believing not simply in grace on paper, but grace in practice. And there's a big, big difference between those two things.